Welcome to Horror and More with Anya Gore. I am your horror mistress, Anya, and today I have a very special guest. I've got Nicholas Humphreys. Hello, Hi. thank you for having me. Do you go by Nicholas? Nick? Like, what's your preference? <sighs> Nicholas is like my professional name, so uh, that goes on everything, but everybody just calls me Nick. They do call you Nick. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I like both, so I just wanted to make <laughs> sure I know how to call or to refer you in this episode. So I'm so glad that you are on here. This is, I didn't think you would respond, honestly. I consider you a heavy hitter on IMDb. Oh, oh thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, for anyone listening, you must look up Nicholas on IMDb because you have had, what, 44 director credits on the website. You've directed more than 70 short films. Yeah. And then you won a whole bunch of awards for The Little Mermaid. I Yeah, yeah, I did. Well, I've been been at this for about 15 years now and uh i wouldn't say i was stuck in shorts land but i i was doing shorts for a long time um and uh and really loved it and when that little mermaid short film came along um i didn't actually want to do that short film when the producers asked me because i had just done one on uh the sirens in ulysses so i was like i've already done scary mermaids like let me let me have something else but um i went for it and uh yeah, there was like a moment, I think, in post on that short film where um, I never feel like anything I've done is is good, but I felt like I don't see any mistakes in this one. I think this will do well at festivals. Right. So I sent it out and it just, uh, like I'd say of anything I've done, that short film has probably been seen the most. It's had six million views online combined between, you know, the Vancouver Film School YouTube channel, Crypt TV's YouTube channel and my own. Um, and that's, that's the thing where I show it to people. They're like, oh, I've seen this. Um, wow. so yeah, it was, uh, it was like a, a one day shoot. Like it was such a little thing, but it's, it's really, you know, followed me around for the last couple of years. And I'm just very grateful that the stars aligned and the cast and the crew and the production design and the cinematography all kind of came together on that one. Well, it's good. I, I watched it myself and I found it inspiring. Um, and that's hard to do as a, as, as a horror person, right? When you're exposed to so much horror, sometimes you see some of the shorts or the local um, TV shows or anything like that. And it's just not very inspiring. Hmm. But this one was. And I loved the take that you guys had on, on the look of the mermaid. Loved it. Yeah, that was uh, that was a lot of well, that was actually a collaboration between uh, my makeup artist Sarah Elizabeth. Kind of came with the idea of this, you know, uh, red-looking mermaid with the flat face and the gills on her face, and you know, she wanted to pay homage to uh, Ariel uh, in the uh, the Disney version with the red hair, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, the. Oh my goodness, it's so long ago. The fellow that did the tale for us, Ben... Oh, I should have looked this up. Um, it's okay, I didn't guy. let you know I would be talking about it so much. <laughs> no, no, it's cool. But we, we actually found a, a textile artist um, who does like... Uh, like modern art exhibits using wow. textiles and he built that tale so it's like it's made out of fabric and textiles and bits of plastic and yeah um 
and then a lot of the finishing sort of there's a there's an aerial shot where you see the mermaid in her entirety and the tail kind of blends in with the makeup and that was finished off by uh, a fellow by the name of Kim Oxland who um, did the music did the visual effects did the uh, the sort of composited CG tent exteriors um, a lot of that movie is is Kim's brilliance um, kind of put in there so yeah it was just a really great collaboration that turned out well you seem to be quite a busy person you are <laughs> also a professor is that right at the film department of the vancouver film school yeah so i'm the senior directing instructor at vfs i've been there for about 15 years and uh that's actually where i learned to make movies my original job there was as the uh uh, I was essentially a, a, an office assistant in the writing department um, because mm. originally I wanted to be a screenwriter and um, a position opened up there and I applied and I got it. And then one of the things that was happening there was that at the time, and this doesn't exist anymore, there used to be this thing called portfolio shorts where uh, at the end of the year, all of the writing students would write a script uh, and they would, uh, you know, we would send them off to directors and then we would provide some resources so that every writer could get a short film made at the end of their year. They'd have like three and a half hours to shoot a short film. And the producing of it and the coordinating of it was spread um, like around amongst a, a number of different departments. Um, and I just noticed little things were happening with like a ball would get dropped here and there. And I just got really good at my job. So I started to say like, why don't I just take care of producing all of these? And then it's in one place and you know, it can make sure that everything's taken care of. So during that time I made, like I produced, I think two to 300 short films uh, in about two years. And there was always like a script in the bunch that was like a little bit tricky to get made. Directors didn't want it for whatever reason. It was ranked really low. Um, so I went and directed a short film so that I could be a director. And then I started taking on those scripts. And um, I found very quickly that this this feeling that I had had since college where I just sort of felt like lost, like I was sort of floating around without any direction. After I made my first short and sent it off to a festival and started getting some positive feedback, I was like, oh, this is this is what I need to spend my life chasing. You know, whether mm. or not I'm successful at it or not um, doesn't matter as long as I, you know, just the, the doing and the pursuing of it um, is something that just is giving me life. So I started directing in that department, um, left to go do my master's degree, and then eventually came back in the film production department. Uh, where I was brought on as a directing instructor sort of full-time. And then now I have taken over the place and have redesigned all the curriculum and built in all these things that I wish I knew when I was finishing film school. Um, so, yeah. And then I've also taught at UBC. I've taught uh, film production over there. And then um, just this last year has been pretty insanely busy because I've just gotten my foot into the TV movie realm. So... I've done a, it's weird coming from like horror and sci-fi and dark fantasy, um, transitioning over into uh, romance uh, movies has been an interesting thing. But I got to do a Lifetime Thriller last November, which was a lot of fun. And I really hope I get to do another one of those because they're just, they're a blast. I bet. So would you say then when you were in school and you made that transition to producing like you said is that sort of when you got the bug to become a director at that point or was it before that 
I never thought that, like, I mean, I started making little short films in my backyard when I was like 13 on a, on a VHS camcorder and I would just edit in camera. Um, but I never thought that it was something that I would be able to do. Um, just cause you know, I was grew up in a small town, single mom, like no film production, you know, around and it just didn't seem like a realistic thing. So I didn't start to believe that I could make money at it. Um, I don't know, until like really recently, actually, <laughs> it always felt like it was just going to be a hobby. Um, but I think, yeah, it was like post-college, you know, floating around, not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life. And then the first short film that I directed and uh, I sent it to the NSI, um, National Screen Institute of Canada, used to have a film festival called The Film Exchange. Uh, and I sent it there and I got the Audience Choice Award. And it was Ooh. the first time that I had done something where I was like, oh, like I enjoy doing this and other people, like I was getting that recognition from, you know, people that I didn't know. So it was like, maybe this, maybe I could do this. Maybe I'm kind of decent at this. Um, so I would say, yeah, the very first short film was just like, okay, this is what I'm going to spend my life sort of pursuing. That's awesome. It, it's nice to have that kind of moment where you realize that what you want to do and what you can do become interlinked. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I would say I think it was 10 years from getting started um, before I started to get paid for it. <laughs> and I had wow. done two short films, or so I had done two feature films during that time um, where I was just kind of doing it for credit for the opportunity. Um, and then, yeah, 10 years in, uh, I was approached by some producers about doing uh, a sci fi horror movie set in space. Um, and I, I got what I call my first big boy director paycheck, um, which I didn't know what to do with because I've been so accustomed to living like a starving artist. Um, <laughs> so I bought myself a little cabin up north um, and uh, it's 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 made some money. So it turned out to be a good investment. And then this year, I think when COVID opened up, um, they just started, you know, handing me these TV movies. So I've done four TV movies in 11 months. And wow. uh this is the point where I'm just like, maybe I can just be a director. Like maybe that's that's in the cards for me, which I've never really allowed myself to believe. Well, I mean, it sounds like you've paid your dues to get to this point. I mean, yeah, I guess. I mean, time-wise I have. Um, I'm just, I'm sort of of the mind of, uh, I'm my own biggest critic. I suffer from pretty intense, uh, imposter syndrome and I look at you know some of my friends who are directors that I think are much better directors than I am um, that just haven't had the same opportunities as me and I think you know it's, there's a little bit of luck involved uh, being in the right place at the right time I think you have to be ready for the luck when the luck hits um, mm -hmm. and I think I've done that work you know in, in, in all my short films I've made all my big mistakes on lower stakes projects so I think that makes me sort of ready for this opportunity but um yeah i don't know it's sort of a it's a really crazy uncertain industry well in vancouver too <laughs> exactly for those who don't know um you're a vancouver man yourself mm -hmm. and you were did i see that you were born in is it bowen island no, I was born way up north in Dawson Creek, BC. Oh, Dawson Creek. Yeah. Right. Okay. And I, 
I was there for maybe six months and then my family moved south and I grew up in Chilliwack in the Fraser Valley. And then I moved right the heck out of there when I turned 18 (laughs) and came to Vancouver. (laughs) For, For anyone who is not familiar with British Columbia, the reason we're laughing is Chilliwack is a very small farm um how would you describe Chilliwack it's a it's a farm town it's a base town but they famously use a lot of uh, manure as fertilizer in the summertime so if you drive through it at the right time of year um doesn't matter if your windows are closed uh it smells like poop (laughs) (laughs) it's true it's true it's like the larger scale Langley Yes. Yeah, it's kind of spread out. Um, There's sort of like a bunch of little areas around it that are all kind of in Chilliwack. It is actually like going back as an adult and, and, you know, visiting. If you go at the right time of year, it's a beautiful place. Um, It's really gorgeous. But uh, to grow up there, a little queer kid in the Bible Belt, it just, I couldn't get out fast enough. Yep, I believe it. I my um my main photographer and I actually just did a road trip last week and kind of went through that area and we ended up in um where did we go Abbotsford we went to Mission and Hope Agassiz kind of that whole area and it is all so perfect for Texas style Texas Chainsaw style kind of horror movies right it's so visually perfect for that. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> well, I think the, the new uh, Antlers movie shot in Hope. Was it? Which, oh. uh, I don't know where it's set, but it's just the look on the trailer is just so spooky. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hope is spooky. Like, it's always kind of foggy and mm-hmm. and wet. And I don't know, it's just got such a really good look to it. Um, yeah. yeah. Where'd you guys end up uh, end up shooting? Just kind of all over? Well, our goal was to get to an abandoned hotel just outside of Agassiz, which we did but it was very public and you're running into potential trespass issues and so we decided not to shoot there right and we tried also to get to the abandoned ferry in mission i don't know if you ever made it out there yourself no there is literally a large bc abandoned ferry that was purchased by two men and it is sitting off their property and people all the time will trespass on their property to get to the abandoned ferry and again you know my photographer and I were both moms we have full-time jobs we don't want to really come home (laughs) from a a phone call from a police department you know right um but it's just everything out there is just so beautifully inspiring for horror and oof have you ever been out to the uh, the Kilby Museum and General Store out in Harrison Mills? No, I'm writing this I feel down. Like you should, yeah, you should check that out. It's uh, it's this spooky old general store with like a hotel, like a little. I think they had like a, a little boarding house attached to it, um, and it's been perfectly preserved uh, since you know, sometime in the 1800s. There's a little gas pump there, oh. uh, and a, a petting zoo. 
and it's just a really beautiful spot. And at, in October, um, they often do a little Halloween thing where you can walk through the place and it's and they tell you like ghost stories and i just remember being a kid and going there and there's these little rooms uh, you can like walk down the hallway where the boarding rooms are and at the end of the hallway there's one boarding room that they've put like a body into like a, just a lump in the bed of somebody sleeping and it's there year round from what i remember but it's it's there's nothing there if you go at halloween it's an actual person and they jump out at you of course oh that's yeah. amazing i'm gonna have to check it out yeah, this is the great cool. thing about living out here. There are so many abandoned things or things that have been preserved. You know, our architecture isn't as stunning as a lot of other places in the city, but ooh, lots of old creepy things in the, in the woods. I was driving uh, up in the Caribous up near 100 Mile House, and I pulled over at something that looked like like an info center it was an old building and it looked like it was you know there was a parking lot and people coming and going and it's like oh they've got to have a bathroom so i pulled over and it turned out and i'll i'll have to look it up and get the name of this place later but it had this whole uh backstory to the place about this woman who lived there and like was systematically killing off people heading to the gold rush and stealing their gold and apparently there's like there's there's some debate as to whether or not this is an urban myth or if it actually happened but uh i think they were like digging up some of the ground for something i can't remember what it was and they found some of the rumored gold that had been buried on the property wow yeah so she was like this like big scary lady from like germany or something and she built this little <laughs> boarding house and then would invite people in and just murder them but and they would never be you know found missing because they were these single guys that were heading up to the gold rush right so there was nobody to miss them they just kind of disappeared on their way to go find their fortune it's a really cool spot i'll find out more and send it to you but it was like the luckiest you know bathroom pullover ever to stop there i ended up staying for like two hours (laughs) that's horrifying and it would make such a good movie yes yeah i don't know why nobody has made this into a movie yet maybe that's Maybe that's the next thing I have to like get together and pitch. <laughs> well, maybe let's talk. So let's talk about your history with your movies. Like I see that you released movies and digital series on HBO, Netflix, Hulu, CBC, Super Channel. Talk about that. Talk about how you got your stuff to get out there. Yeah. Uh, well, okay, so I think the first thing to receive, like, mass distribution, because I was doing short films for the longest time, and, you know, I would do the festival route, I would send them off to festivals, and then just be like, you know, it would it would get be well-received, and then um, just, that was it. And so I was having trouble getting involved with something that was more sustained, right, where the buzz could kind of keep going. And uh, when I was doing my master's thesis... I was working with a bunch of people at the time um, and we kind of got together and decided we wanted to try and make a TV show. Um, but when we started approaching networks, uh, the, the consensus was that, you know, we're, we're nobody. We're just a bunch of film students uh, and indie, indie film makers that haven't worked in television, haven't done anything. Um, and so we couldn't even get a call back. Like we, we pitched that thing 
to basically everyone. Couldn't even get a, an email back saying, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Um, <laughs> and eventually we took the pilot to, I think it was like a junior development executive at CTV and pitched this, this uh, uh, series idea. And she said, you know, I can't show this to my boss. She'll she'll laugh at me and, and question me because you guys have never done anything before. She's like, but I've seen the things that you've done. You're making these beautiful short films. Why don't you break up this pilot into a bunch of episodes, put it on the internet, build an audience, and then come back. Um, so that's what we did. We ended up raising, uh, what's that, $250,000 in private investment, shot the wow. first five episodes of this like steampunk sci-fi web series. Um, and, uh, did a lot of promotion. Like we went down to Comic-Con in San Diego and handed out like 60,000 units of promotional materials. Um, there was things like buttons and postcards and little propaganda booklets for the, uh, evil religious organization in the world of the, the show. Um, and the buzz kind of began there at Comic-Con and then spread because people came from all over the world, collected our materials, and then went home. Um, and we were driving traffic to uh, our social media channels and we were you know, releasing information about cast as we got them. And a lot of our cast had been on things like Smallville, Battlestar Galactica, Stargate, um, all the big you know genre shows in town. Um, so when our first episode went up on YouTube, it got like a million views overnight. Um, I think YouTube actually put it on their main page for 24 hours. Wow. Uh, so the buzz had sort of began. Yeah. And, uh, we were la launched the first five episodes, got tons of views. Like we were on the front of the, the television mm -hmm. section of the Sunday New York times. Um, but nothing had happened. Like it was, it was just a web series at that point and, and it hadn't evolved into anything else. So we ended up raising another $300,000, shot another five episodes, but I had produced the first five with the agreement that when it goes to television, there was one episode of the TV show in the beat sheet about these evil children that I was like, that's the horror episode, that's my episode, I wanna direct that. And then it made the most sense to shoot that one next, uh, broken up into five pieces, right? Like we did with the first one. So I took off my producer hat, I put on my director hat, um, and directed the next five episodes. It was the most fun I had had up to that point directing anything. Um, and then my first episode went up and then we got a call from our, uh, I guess it was our sales agent said the sci-fi channel, uh, had licensed us for distribution, but the caveat was we had to take the whole thing off the internet, uh, until they were ready to launch it because they're not going to pay for it if we're already giving it away for free. So all these people were waiting for the next five episodes and, uh, you know, I'd only released one and then it all came down and there was a big re-edit where like, you know, parts of the first five episodes were mixed into the next five. So that it was this one big thing. Um, but it did really well on the sci-fi channel space channel in canada recut it as a feature and broadcast it like one sunday out of the month for like two years or something um it was on netflix in the us uh it did it did really well and that was the thing like you know it, it didn't end up getting turned into a show which was our plan but it was the thing that let me show that i could do longer form content because all i had was short films at that time so um, that led to my first feature film, um, which had a very small budget. Uh, it was a $50,000, I 
I, I hesitate to say it's been marketed as a slasher movie, but it's not that gory. It's more of a murder mystery set in a cabin in the woods. You know, it's like classic indie first feature horror movie type setup. Okay. Um, but that did really well as well. It, it went out on, uh, I think I got Blu-ray distribution in the UK, uh, Anchor Bay and, and Raven Banner distributed on DVD here in Canada. It was on Super Channel. Um, and then... Yeah, next feature was a feature-length, loosely feature-length adaptation of the Little Mermaid short, um, with a lot of a lot of changes to it. But uh, we actually managed to land uh, Ewan Rayon, who played uh, Ramsay Bolton in Game of Thrones. Wow. Um, he was in that movie. Yeah, and I was really intimidated because he plays such scary characters on TV, but he is like the <laughs> nicest man you've ever met. And that's like, aside from being really talented, I'm convinced that's why he works is because he's just a lot of fun. Mm. Um, and I think that helped a lot in the uh, the HBO um, distribution deal for that one. I don't have much to do with the distribution of it, but I've seen it listed on HBO in the UK. Um so that's where that one's available. And then I've had shorts on CBC through, I think CBC had a contest called Exposure where you submitted your short film. So I had one on there. Um, i trying to remember what's on Hulu. I think it was, I can't even remember. Well, I know you can watch the Lifetime Thriller on Hulu, but there was something else. It's so funny though, as the director, it's like you don't really find out where things are unless you set up a Google alert for your name yeah, <laughs> or the of name course. of the, the project. Nobody calls the director and says, oh, by the way, we've changed the name of the movie and it's being released <laughs> as this out here. You just kind of find out because someone's like, hey, did you direct this? And it's like, I, I don't know what that movie is. And then you read the back of it and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I directed that. <laughs> Nobody told me it's being called something different now. Oh, that's funny. That's awesome, though. Like, just hearing everything that all the work that you put in, I mean, even driving down to Comic-Con and handing out pamphlets, that's huge. That's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. And I, I mean, I don't know if I could do it. I mean, I was, I was young. I had more energy, I think in my early twenties. Now that I'm like in my forties, I just kind of want to do as little as possible. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, and that's why I'm kind of like, I'm loving the TV movies more than I, I anticipated I would because these indie features take up years of your life. Like even the last kind of indie project that I did, which, you know, uh, ended up doing pretty well. It, it got a theatrical release uh, in, in Canada and the US, which was exciting. I got to like go to the theater in LA and just watch it in the wow. theater with trailers. It wasn't even at a film festival. There was random people there that had just showed up to watch it that I didn't know. Um, and that was really exciting. But that movie was like five years of my life from beginning to end. And Which movie is you know, this? What's it called? Uh, this one was called Project Ithaca. Project Ithaca, um, yep. Yeah, it's like a space thriller kind of thing period movie but all kind of takes place in a spaceship um, we shot that in Sudbury Ontario uh, in 2018 um, and that was a blast because I got to like leave Vancouver and just focus on making a movie and living in that world for a while but again it was like a big big time commitment um, yeah. and the thing I love about these TV movies is that I usually find out that I'm directing it about 
24 to 48 hours before pre-production starts. Um, The director is often like the last piece of the puzzle, right? Because it's just, it's such a machine to get everything else greenlit. I usually find out I'm doing it. I'm location scouting sometimes as early as the next day. Uh, Three weeks later, we're on set shooting. We shoot for 12 days. And then I get five days to do my director's cut, which seems like an an incredibly short amount of time, but they have editors that are working on them as we're shooting. So Mm. on my last day of shooting, there's a full editor's cut. I slide in there, tweak it and get it into the best shape that I can in five days, hand it off to the producers, and then I don't even think about them again. (laughs) And it's like six weeks of my life. It's paid. And, you know, it's, I've, I was, because I love horror so much, like even with these, these romance movies, which, you know, it's just kind of the polar opposite of where my passions are. I've just found that the experience of making them, that the joy, you know, doesn't necessarily come from like, I'm, I'm making this thing that I'm like, you know, has to be amazing. It's that I get to go in and use the skills that I've developed over the last 15 years and be rewarded for doing good work. And that's where the joy is coming. And I get to meet some really great people and work with some really great people. And, you know, they're just kind of fun. Um, and then I get to walk away and I got money in the bank and it's nice. Um, and I would love to do more horror movies, but one of the things that I was experiencing with the first three was that when I really care about something as a director, and this is, this I think is a condition of me still developing my skills as a director in an environment where, you know, I don't have all the time and resources that I would like. Um, but when I really care about what I'm doing, and then it doesn't turn out the way I planned, it's really heartbreaking um, yeah. because it's personal, right? It's like if it goes, crosses over from work into into your art, it stops being a business and it starts being personal. So it's like when you don't love the finished result and often the directors don't get uh, get to, you know, approve the finished result, it just gets finished. Um, yeah, it, it, it hurts. Um, and so I think going away for a little bit and working in a genre that I'm happy working in um, to develop my skills and make a little bit of money and then come back to horror later in my career when I know I can have an executive producer credit and have the final say on the edit. Mm. I think that's uh, that's my long-term plan within the genre as a, as a filmmaker. Um, and in the meantime, I'll just be a, a horror fan, I guess. Right. Have you been a horror fan your whole life? my whole life yeah. yeah yeah i was always into spooky things as a kid um i accidentally saw michael jackson's thriller on <laughs> much music as a child and was it was the fir- i remember I, I i still have the memory of it of being so like physically affected by what i had seen Um, and it felt bad. Like I wasn't supposed to be seeing Mm -hmm. it. Like it just, it triggered all these like fantastic things. Um, (laughs) and then I just started chasing that feeling, um, as a kid. And, and I saw, like, I have a friend who, I don't remember this, um, but I, I have a friend that I've had since grade four, uh, and you know, we're friends as adults now. And she keeps telling me this story or tells other people this story about how when she came over to my house in like grade four, grade five, I tried to sit her down and make her watch The Exorcist with me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's amazing. Yeah. And I just, yeah, yeah, I've just, I've been a fan my whole life. And the idea that I'd get to like make them was just like such a fantasy that I never thought would actually happen. So, um, 
yeah, I feel very lucky to have gotten to, you know, just do what I've, I've done at this point. I think, you know, a lot of people dream about it, don't get to do it. And I've just, I've been in the right place at the right time and, and things have come together. I've been ready for, for it when it came, but, um, you know, I think there's a lot of really deserving people out there that haven't had the same opportunities that would probably kill it. So I, I do acknowledge how lucky I am. Yeah, that's sort of a consistent theme I'm hearing with people that are at your level of being able to create and do what you want, um, but without being amongst this massive Hollywood world, right? Is it, it sort of seems that, yes, you've put in time, you've put in the hard work, but it's almost more about luck and, like you said, being there at the right time. Um. And it's tough because, yeah, there's so many amazing creators out there. Like, what would you say to somebody who's trying to make it as a horror director or any director? I, so, uh, and I tell this to my students all the time. I always go back to this story of, because this has been something that has really, like, affected me and in my pursuit of my career and things like fitness and stuff like that. Um, but back when I was in my early twenties, I did this, uh, this pilgrimage. I, I got dragged on this pilgrimage across Spain. So it's this ancient pilgrimage called the Camino de Santiago. The people have been doing it for thousands of years starts in like the South of France. And then you basically walk, I think it's 500 miles to the coast of Spain, to the city of Santiago de Compostela. And, um, I had a friend that really wanted to go and really wanted me to go with her. And I just, I wasn't into it, but I was like, okay, let's do this. And when you're starting, you know, I think we made it through the mountains, horribly planned. We kind of left the South of France and, and didn't bring any food and then got stuck in the mountains for like two days without any food, finally made it out of the mountains to the beginning of the trailhead. And it said 500 miles to Santiago. And I remember standing there looking at that sign thinking like, there's no way we're going to walk this whole way. We're not walking 500 <laughs> miles nonstop. That's not, we're going to take a cab. We're going to give up. We're going to come home. Like that's, there's no way we're going to do this. But we woke up every day and we put one foot in front of the other and walk for about 10 hours a day, we'd go to sleep, get up the next morning. We walked and eventually we got there. And I had two, like a lot of people do this for like, I mean, it's a Catholic pilgrimage now. It was something else before Catholicism sort of uh, co-opted it. Um, people have different reasons for doing this pilgrimage. And for me, I didn't know what that reason was until I got to the end. And it was that I learned, I was learning two major things. One was if you keep putting one foot in front of the other, eventually you're going to get where you're going. And the other thing was when we got there, you know, the town itself was pretty, but it was really anticlimactic after like, a month of walking in the same direction, you get to the final, you know, destination, you're like, Oh, it's just another town. We've been walking <laughs> through towns this whole time. And I realized that the adventure and like the, the thing that gave us stories to tell happened along the way. Hmm. And so those two things I brought back with me and it has kind of infected every aspect of my life. So what I tell my students is that this is not going to happen overnight. You're not going to graduate from film school and have someone hand you a couple million dollars to do, you know, your, your movie. Um, but if you want it and there's nothing else that you'd be happy doing, 
start heading towards it. And if you keep putting one foot in front of the other, eventually you're gonna get where you're going. But also remember to enjoy the ride, right? Because the little projects you get to make, the friendships you make along the way, the, the little festival releases, like those are the things that you're gonna remember that it's gonna give you stories to tell. So, you know, be okay with the fact that it's a marathon um and and try to enjoy it and and i think you know for people wanting to direct horror movies specifically i think that that advice is is just good advice the other thing i would say too and this is not my advice i have completely stolen this from philip glass but i tell this to people all the time or sorry uh no who's this american life philip glass is the composer ira glass ira glass okay and he has this thing about the creativity gap and basically and i, I might butcher this a little bit but basically the idea is when you're coming to any kind of creative art form, whether it's making movies or painting or you know writing a book, whatever it is, it's because you love that art form and you have good taste, which means you know what is good. But when we're just starting out, you know, our experience level, the resources we have available to us, a number of conditions kind of only support us making stuff that's way below the things that we love. Right. And we can't help but feel like well, maybe I'm just not that good at this. Um, the thing that we all need to understand is that, you know, if you do a high volume of work, first of all, everybody starts in that place. Um, but if you do a high volume of work, if you keep pushing through the pain, eventually you'll get closer to being able to make the things that you regard as having value. And a lot of people give up along the way because they're just like, well, that's good. I'm not making what's good, so I'm just going to stop. Um, but any successful person that's out there has like just, you know, worked through that discomfort. Um, so I would just I would tell anyone wanting to be a horror director to keep that in mind, too. Right. Like as you're making stuff, if you feel like it's not great, work your way through that pain because we, we all are either have been there or are still there fighting our way through. Wow, that's beautifully put. Thanks. It's not mine. I totally stole it. I well, <laughs> but I think it's good advice. <laughs> it, it is. But even even your comparing it to this, you know, the, this trip you went on. That's an, it's incredible. It's, it, yeah, I can I can feel what you're talking about myself. And I'm not a director. <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, that's awesome. I love it. So what is, what is your favorite thing about directing? My favorite thing about directing is it's sort of, I'm like this weird uh, mix of being very introverted in the sense that, you know, I, I need time to recharge my battery after being on, um, which is so funny that I've become like a director and a teacher where I'm around people and I'm talking all the time um, because I actually do enjoy that, right? So I'm a little bit extrovert in that I enjoy that, but I also need the time to recharge my battery, which makes me kind of more of an introvert. Um, the thing that I love about, that I guess the extroverted part of me that loves about directing is that it is a collaborative art form. Um, you know, I read a script and I make a bunch of choices around what the vision is. And then I show up and I'm working with actors who are just focusing on the character that they are playing. I'm working with a cinematographer who is focusing on the image and is going to have better ideas than me. I'm working with a production designer who is thinking about their department is going to have ideas that are better than mine. And we come together in, in, you know, the, uh, the, the, 
uh, you know, trying to focus a, a singular vision, but we're collaborating on it. And when you bring all these like people who are experts of their craft together and it elevates it to something better than it was just in my stupid little head, I find that very exciting. Um, and I just, I think that's my favorite part about directing. I also like being able to set a tone on set. When I was first getting started and I was volunteering on other uh, film sets, I, I learned a lot about what I would and wouldn't do as a director. When I saw directors that were um, letting their stress show, um, you know, taking out frustrations on people, it really set a tone on set that would like trickle down to every single department, like all the way to the PAs. Um, and so I'm glad I got to do that because when I'm directing, it's like, I will find out the PA's names. I will introduce myself. I will, you know, if I've been seeing them sitting on a, at a doorway for too long, I'll bring them like a bottle of water because I know what it's like to have been there. Mm -hmm. um, but I just, yeah, I like to be the one to set the tone because I think people work better when they're enjoying themselves and they feel valued. Um, I think that, uh, you know, having a shitty tone on set just brings everything to a halt and yeah so I like kind of being it's not that I'm like I like being in charge for that reason not not because I want everyone to do what I want <laughs> when I want it it's right. yeah no if someone's going to be responsible for how this day is going to go you know mood wise let it be me because I can I can fake positivity for 12 hours solid <laughs> Wow. even when I'm stressed out that's good yeah so, it sounds like you're the right fit then definitely for that job <laughs> well thank you yeah i have a good i i i think in a, in a lot of it's like kind of growing up in the indie world where you don't have a lot of money to pay people if you are paying them you're paying them a reduced rate um so it's always been really important to me that when i'm directing i want people to think that it's going to be the best party in town and they want to be invited um because right. that was the only currency i had when i first was getting started and now that's just how I direct. So, um, yeah, it's just important to me that when people find out they're working on a movie and I'm directing that they're excited about it, not like groaning. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's awesome. That's how it should be across the board. I think so. Yeah, because like you said, everybody starts someplace. And it's nice when you've got the higher up, so to speak remembering what that's like because oftentimes they don't yeah yeah or they you know i find too that sometimes people in this business who received i don't know for lack of a better word abuse when they were on their way up the ladder um feel compelled to repeat that cycle rather than change it mm -hmm. um and uh, i've had a lot of support along the way and you know i just I also want to be like, there's, I, there were situations where I felt like I needed answers to things or, or needed someone to just kind of, you know, talk about the pains of, you know, directing and the loneliness of it and, and being uncertain about it. And so if I can be that for other people too, that's, that's really important to me. And that's why I also like love teaching, right? I think there's this, you know, people say that stupid thing about, you know, those who can't do teach, which is just, you know, it's like, it's such horseshit because <laughs> people don't teach because, you know, they, the, people don't teach for the paycheck, right? If they're, if they're there, it's because they have a passion for teaching. And I know for me specifically is that I will probably always have one foot in the door in film education, because if I'm not working on a film set, I feel like the way that I can 
add value to the world is by supporting the next generation of filmmakers. And that's that I find just as rewarding as going out and, and making something. So, and everybody that's I awesome. work with at the film school too, it's the same way, right? Like they're there because they're passionate about teaching the next generation and getting them like closer to their dreams. Um, well, can you imagine? I mean, you might have a Jordan Peele or a John Carpenter wimp amongst your your students, you know? Well, exactly. And I, I actually think that, like, one of the reasons I got my foot in the door on TV movies was because uh, one of my grads was, ended up working at the company that ended up hiring me and kept putting my name forward. So, you know, I always say, like, treat people the best you can because it's the right thing to do. Um, and it, and it feels good, but also mm -hmm. in this industry, people move around so quickly, you never know who's going to be paying your bills. Mm. Um, so treat everybody good <laughs> and it, and chances are it'll come back and, and help you at some point. Well, that's great. So do you have any upcoming projects you want to talk about? Um, I mean, <laughs> I've got, is it two unreleased um, romance movies that are on their way <laughs> that I had a lot of fun making, um, but they're not in the horror genre, unfortunately. Um, and those will probably be like a, like a Hallmark or an Up TV or a W Network sort of release. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really hoping um, it now that we're getting into thriller season because basically you know these companies make all of the sunny summer romances in the spring and summer and then when we get into fall and winter then the thrillers come along mm. um and i recently did the well, last year i did one uh that when we were making it it was called what's what's the matter with alice um which was like such a cool title mm -hmm. um and then it was released on lifetime under the title deceitful dating um which okay. i guess they just have their their naming um, conventions that they do, but, uh, that was a lot of fun. That, that was sort of, um, you know, this woman moves in next door and, and it seems like something's wrong with her. And then she starts dating the dad and the daughter is suspicious. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was fun. I got to hit someone with a car. That was, that was a first Ooh. got to <laughs> s smoke someone with a car and it was like a whole sequence with a stunt person. And that was kind of a blast. Um, but uh, yeah, nothing, nothing spooky on the way right now, but that's, I'm kind of hoping I get to do like another one or two of those this fall and winter. Right. It sounds like you're doing a fair amount. So that's probably definitely not off the table for you at all. I think it's likely, which makes me very excited, but that's like the other thing too. And I guess this kind of ties back to your question about like advice for future filmmakers is that there's going to be huge periods of your career where you don't know where the next project is coming from. And because of that, it feels like it's never coming. And one of the things that I've learned over time is that that feeling is normal. I'd feel like that every single time I finish a movie, but then I just find the sense of Zen that eventually the phone is going to ring because it always does. Um, and if you're doing it right, I guess the phone rings more and more frequently and that's just been the trend. So this little, this little quiet period that I'm in right now, I'm just trying to enjoy the downtime and, and, you know, do some work at the film school and hang out at home a little bit more because post COVID, I don't have like regular office hours anymore. I get to go in to teach and then hang out at home and 
guest on podcasts. Right. Um, <laughs> so I think just, yeah, trust that, uh, you know, eventually the phone's going to ring and, and try not to panic. You know, if you've got these little downtimes, try to enjoy the calm before the storm because, you know, I'll get that call 24 hours later. I'm going to be location scouting and, and then it's going to be madness for a couple of weeks. So, yeah, I'm just trying to enjoy the quiet, recharge my battery. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So as a horror fan, then one of the things <clears throat> that I always ask my horror fan guests is their top three favorite horror movies. Yeah. And I want to hear your why. And then I, I always look up fun little, hopefully unknown facts, or if they're known, they're not often as known. <laughs> oh, amazing. Um, so I don't know what you're going to know, what you're not going to know, but, um, I want to hear your perspective definitely on the shining. So the shining is like, I, I put that as my number one for a number of reasons. Uh, one, it was another movie that I, I watched way too young and it really messed me up. Um, but at this point in my life, I find it so comforting, uh, that it's something that I could go to sleep to. Um, because it just has that, that familiarity. Um, I don't know. I just, I love the soundtrack. I love the set. I love the performances I love how weird it is. Um, there's something so spooky about the, the weirdness of it. And I, and I love the novel too, but I, I do, I'm a big fan of Kubrick's take on it. Um, yeah. And then, um, I recently, so before, uh, when, when Dr. Sleep, the, the novel came out, I read it right away. Mm -hmm. completely anticipating not to like it. Um, and I loved the book. Um, and then when it was announced that Mike Flanagan was doing Dr. Sleep, um, I got very excited because I'm, I think Mike Flanagan and Ari Aster, are like my two favorite working directors at this point. Are um, they? Okay. Yeah. So I was very excited about Flanagan's take on it. And then I wasn't disappointed. I loved that he took us back to the Overlook because that wasn't in the book. Because in mm -hmm. the book, the Overlook burns down. So when they go back, it's like a it's like a park um, when they have their big showdown there. Whereas because Flanagan was sort of adapting from Kubrick's movie version, the Overlook exists, but it's like all abandoned and decrepit. So I just, ah, oh, it's just amazing. But yeah, no, I love the, the isolation of it. Um, I, I try and, and and hide a visual reference to The Shining in every movie that I direct. You do? Ooh. I do. There's a, there's a shot in um, in uh, Charlotte's song. What is it? Mermaid song is what they're calling it now. Um, where this little girl is having this dream where she's remembering her mother who has uh, uh, who died in the bathtub. Her mother killed herself in the bathtub. And when she's having the dream... Um, I pretty much shot it identically to the bathroom sequence in The Shining to the point where I pulled out um, <laughs> stills from The Shining and we like put it next to the monitor and lined up things like where the door frame behind her was sitting on her shoulder and where the lamp was over the other. Like it just made sure that the size and shape of it was pretty unmistakably the same. Wow. Um, there was also uh, a scene in Project Ithaca, which I think they cut this shot. Um, but, uh, there was a guy who's, it's flashes back to a, a memory, this guy who, um, is 
from the future and he's stuck in this jail cell in 2050 and he's banging on the door um and i kind of shot it super low so that it looked like the shot where jack is trying to get out of the uh the pantry in the shining oh Um, yeah yeah it's just like little things that i try and sneak in here and there i think i've had like um anytime there's like a door where i need to put like a number on a door i'll do like two three seven um yeah so it's just it it affects me in a lot of ways and i just i think it's a perfect movie it's i love the way it's paced i love the long spooky wide shots um and it has definitely infected my style so yeah that's great i mean kubrick's also so legendary as a director too so i completely understand that what's interesting is hearing you say your thoughts about dr sleep i was exactly the same as you I read it immediately, didn't really think I was going to like it very much, loved the book. And then I, the the movie was very difficult for me to watch. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got two young kids, so anything with children and that Oh, the that baseball one, boy. Oh, whoo, yeah. that kid is incredible. Yeah. But, um... He's a local guy too, isn't he? I think he's from Vancouver. Is he? He's a really great actor. I love that kid. Am I best? I feel like he was the same kid in Room. Yeah, I think so. He's been in a bunch of it's... things. He's been in other horror movies. And I remember yeah. watching Doctor Sleep and thinking there can't be a lot of parents that allow their children on set to go through something like that because i know in the first one they really went out of their way to make sure that danny wasn't aware he was filming a horror movie but that scene in doctor sleep there's no way he did not know that that was a horror movie (laughs) yeah but it's you know it's funny like i've worked with a lot of kids and you know my my first you know, my default is always to kind of protect them from the content if it's really adult content. And I'll, mm. I'll uh, my, my adjustments will be more as if scenarios. So it's like, we'll just take it in a different direction as long as the result looks the same as what I'm, I'm looking for. But we might not necessarily talk about what's happening. Um, and I remember specifically doing a, it was like a zombie, it was a short film that was like Wizard of Oz, but with zombies. It was part of a series of four short films. And the one that I did was zombie, or uh, sorry, Dorothy wakes up in the storm cellar and the farmhands are down there, but there's been a zombie apocalypse on the surface. And then the zombies get in and the farmhands get torn to shreds in front of her. And the way I shot it was that she was like, she was like this 11, 10, 11 year old girl. She was never there for the violent stuff and the blood. Mm. Um, and I, I was going to shoot her out first and then turn around and then shoot the reverse so that, you know, we were shooting everything that she was looking at separately. Um, but she stuck around and her mom was like, no, she really wants to see it. <laughs> um, and so while she was waiting for the turnaround, she was on her iPad playing like zombie shoot up games. She was so excited to be in a zombie movie. Aww. And when we were shooting it, she was just like, like had stars in her eyes. Right. So I think. Yeah, I don't know. I think, I mean, it definitely depends on the kid, and I think age plays a, a factor. But I also think, like, some kids, when they're, if they're making it, it's very different than seeing it in a movie. You know what I mean? Right, like, I yeah. think 
I, I think if I was, I mean, I was into it at a very young age as well, where I think if somebody had put me on a horror movie set as a five-year-old, I would have been like, yes, <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> See, I'm like that now and I'm 40. <laughs> Get me on a movie set. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so some facts that I found out about this movie, um, which this first fact maybe made a little bit more sense about why Stephen King did not like Stanley Kubrick's version of the movie. So Stephen King wrote a draft for the screenplay, but Stanley Kubrick did not read it. He instead (sighs) collaborated with another novelist on the film script. Whoa. I didn't know that. And that could explain why Stephen King has a little bit of beef with Stanley Kubrick. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that explains it right there for sure. In in Kubrick's defense, though, and I think, and I, I wouldn't normally defend Kubrick because I think by today's standards, he's pretty problematic as a director and the way he treated his actors. But, um, and I love Stephen King, but some of Stephen King's screenplays, I don't know, I like... <laughs> I feel like the magic of his books don't necessarily translate to the screenplay format successfully. Yeah. If you've um, watched any of the movies that he's participated in, they're not very good, unfortunately. Right? I feel bad saying it. I know, but it's, like... but it's true, though. He is a really yeah. good novelist. Very yes. good at that. And his yeah. worlds are amazing. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> think maybe it needed a little adaptation because i mean we'll look at the and again okay so i like i love mick garris i think mick garris did the the tv version they did a mini series of the shining and the screenplay was written by stephen king yeah um and uh i went back to that uh, about a year ago because my sister has it on dvd and i couldn't even make it through the first hour and I tried, like I was, <laughs> I was committed. I was like, we're going to watch this whole thing. It, it was painful. Um, and I don't know how much of that's the screenplay and how much it was the casting. Could have been know, a combination just, just... of things. Yeah. Yeah. But Stephen yeah. King was famously more happy with the miniseries than he was Kubrick's version. So which, which I think is... you've hit it. Yeah. I mean, it's the Kubrick's version is an undeniably amazing version. Yeah. It just, yeah. Um, apparently as well, Kubrick's film inspired several conspiracy theories, including that Kubrick made the shining as his confession for helping to fake the moon landing. (laughs) I've never, I was aware. You've heard about that one. I, I was aware of that one, yeah. That is nuts. Yeah. There's actually a uh, a documentary called Room 237. Yeah. yeah. Um, which goes into all these different theories. And uh, I don't know. I, I took issues with the documentary because I feel like, you know, it, it crossed a line between, like, film analysis, right? Which I think is a very valid... You know, like let's let's take things that let's look at this movie for you know what kind of social significance it has let's let's explore you know themes and things that maybe weren't even the filmmaker's intention i think that's a it's a valid practice and it's interesting but it it crosses this line between that and like crazy people with crazy ideas <laughs> yeah. um which ended up kind of i think like uh invalidating film analysis 
in a way within the documentary. Um, that, uh, I don't know, like, I think that's an interesting conspiracy theory, though. Um, I think there's a lot of, like, really cool things to point towards that are like, yeah, maybe he did fake the moon landing, or maybe as a backup to actually landing, having a fake version shot by Stanley Kubrick, you know, I think that's interesting. Like, I think it's like, what if, okay, if this doesn't work and everybody dies in space, cut to Kubrick's version. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Make sure that we've got this contingency fund to hire him as a just in yeah. case thing. <laughs> yeah, I think that I could get behind that. <laughs> I like it. So he's got he's got this um, undisclosed, you know, small film that he can take with him to his grave. <laughs> Right. <laughs> At least use it. I think it would have been like a nice or no, because I guess uh, 2001 came out before the moon landing. Right. Isn't that how the theory kind of mm. came together is that he was so good at shooting fake space that the government then hired him to shoot the moon landing? <laughs> I, mean, I think is sense. the idea. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's good. Right. <laughs> Um, and then another fact I found out was, so you'll remember that the room is room 217. No, sorry, 237. Mm -hmm. And uh, they filmed it at a place called Timberline Lodge in Oregon, which is where the exterior is for the setting of the Overlook. They mm -hmm. requested that the room be changed to 237. It was actually set in room 217 because they were afraid guests would no longer stay in that room if it was featured in the movie so there is no real room 237 at the timberline lodge yeah that's funny which i feel like horror fans would be rushing to stay there well yeah what a missed opportunity i know like, i'm trying i'm trying to sell a house right now and i'm really tempted to like say that it's haunted because i feel like I could probably get an extra few thousand dollars for it. Probably. <laughs> the way people see it. Yeah. <laughs> Have totally some paranormal awesome. investigators come in and. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so moving on to your next movie, I have never seen this, and <gasps> I know reading about it as much as I did, I am absolutely watching this in the next week or so. <laughs> uh, but Demons from 1985, which was an Italian horror movie directed by Lamberto Baba and produced by Dario Argento. Mm -hmm. So tell me why you love this one. I um, I hope I can talk about this in the podcast. I <laughs> I um, first time I saw Demons, I had was a teenager and I had come home from a party. Um, pretty much peaking on LSD and uh, my brother was home and decided he was going to fuck with me and put on demons because he had already seen it oh. and it is I can I only imagine the visuals it, it was rough right like it's it's I think I guess it classifies as a giallo uh, horror movie but it's the gore is so creative um, and it doesn't look like real but it's like it's demons right so it's like it's like what's real um it's just it's so graphic and upsetting and weird and there's something just like but like because it's dubbed um 
in English, I think. Oh, it is? <laughs> so it's just got this weird vibe to it. And then this like misplaced punk soundtrack. There's just so many things that shouldn't work that together work uh, to create this really just uncomfortable, visceral experience. And I remember, you know, it's, it's based around people getting trapped in a movie theater mm-hmm. um, while there's this essentially like a zombie outbreak within the movie theater happening. And it's, uh, yeah, if you're claustrophobic at all, if you get panicky around crowds of people, um, it's it's pretty triggering. So it's a lot of fun. And then just, you know, if you if you go into sort of how it was released it's all very confusing. Like in some countries, they ended up making a sequel, I but saw in some that. countries, the sequel came out first, and I then saw, the first I one was released too. as the sequel. <laughs> but both movies have like similar actors. Like not all the actors came back for the sequel. Like dead actors that died in the first one come back and play like similar archetypes in the sequel. Oh, it's just funny. this bizarro, like world of like moment in horror film history that. Uh, yeah, I just, I love it. I love it. And I was at Comic-Con uh, in San Diego and uh, found an original, um, what do they call it? Like a lobby. It was a movie poster that hung in a theater in Paris when it came out. Um, wow. And it was all tattered and torn. And I think I bought it for like 10 bucks. And it's now framed and hanging on my bedroom wall and is in the background of all the Zoom calls that I do with my <laughs> students at the film school. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, anyone probably has seen some of the visuals of this movie. Like, I've never seen the movie, but I I know the the cover. When I worked at Roger's Video, I remember having it on the shelf in VHS. Mm-hmm. So everybody can relate to anybody listening. Just go and Google Demons 1985, and you'll say, "Oh yes, I remember seeing the the cover of this. Looks awesome." And it's gotten nothing but really good reviews. And it's everybody is saying the same thing that you just did, that it's fun and it is weird. And apparently it's just like really good. Well, and story wise, it just keeps like I like objectively, the story continues to fall apart. You know what I mean? Like it's like it gets worse and worse logic wise, but it takes you on such a ride that it doesn't matter. Like you just completely forgive where it's going because it's like at one point, you know, a helicopter falls through the ceiling and you're like, (laughs) why? But also like, cool. Like, (laughs) why not? (laughs) That's the kind of reaction you want to have from people watching movies though, right? When they're watching it going, huh, but that's really cool. Yeah, as long as they're, as long as you just like they're along for the ride, I think you've succeeded. Totally. Yeah. So this one was harder to find unknown facts about. Obviously, it's not American, so I had to do a little bit of digging. And uh, the name of the cinema, so which is Metropole, can be seen as a building in the first Silent Hill video game. So yes. they they did a homage to this movie, which is neat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess there is a blind man who goes into the cinema, and that was meant to be an ironic joke. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> again, I have to see yeah. it, so I don't know. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Like, I don't know. And then, and then, like, if I get spoiler alert, one mm-hmm. of the things that happens to the guy is that he gets his eyes 
poked out. Oh, jeez. But they, so it just was like mean, but also they, his eyes don't work. Yeah. Right. So it's like, why is that? <laughs> like, wouldn't it have been like more nihilistic to like take his hearing away too? You know what I mean? Yes. But instead it's just, I don't know. <laughs> Taking that thing Sorry. that doesn't work. <laughs> Yeah, it's like okay, it's a joke. I I guess if we're making fun of blind people, like what? <laughs> well, I mean, when this came out, you know, things were a little bit less politically charged than they are these days. I suppose, yes. And then the last uh, fun fact I found out was the scene where the cocaine is dropped inside the car and where the characters are picking it back up was apparently a subject of controversy. Which led to the scene being censored almost all over the world. Which is crazy. Was coke. it because it was they were using a Coke can? I, I don't know I, why I haven't seen it, so I don't know. Oh. Yeah, I think they're like, they scoop it onto like a Coca-Cola can. <laughs> and I was like, because I remember thinking, I was like, I don't think Coke agreed to this. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm definitely watching this now. I'm going to message you after yeah. I watch it. Okay. So they, they, they scoop it onto a Coca-Cola can? Yes, it falls on this woman's chest, and they're using this little razor to kind of scoop it off her cleavage and then put it back on top of a Coke can for some reason, which is like... I, and I don't. I, it seems like a bad place to scoop it, too. I think they were doing it out of the Coke can. That's what it was. They had a straw sticking into the Coke can... And they were snorting coke Coke from the Coke can. That's what it was. (laughs) That is amazing. That's amazing. I have to see this movie. If anyone else is watching and you also haven't seen Demons, go and watch it and let us know what you thought. And then your last film choice was uh, an interesting one, I thought, because I, I saw this when it came out so long time ago. Um, but session nine, and um, I'm going to give a quick little synopsis for anybody that has not seen this. So Session 9 is a tale of terror when a group of asbestos removal workers start work in an abandoned insane asylum. The complex of buildings looms up out of the woods like a dormant beast, grand, imposing, abandoned, deteriorating. The residents of Dan's Danvers, Massachusetts, steer well clear of the place. But Danvers State Mental Hospital, closed down for 15 years, is about to receive five new visitors. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me why this is in your top three. This is in my top three because this is one of the few movies that I cannot watch by myself with the lights off. It is so unsettling to me. And I think it, it comes from really a lot of like the, the location, Um, the location that they shot in is a character in this movie, the, the Danvers um, state medical hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think they shot there before, I think it's been torn down or it's been converted to condos or something like that, but it doesn't exist in that state anymore. Um, And it's just so, unsettling like we have a couple places like that near vancouver um riverview they shoot a bunch of movies i've actually shot at review of you before i was just um, gonna and... ask you have yeah we well 
<laughs> so we shot the first season uh, of our web series there. And because I was producing, I had some time on my hands on set. And uh, you have to, there's a number of rules when you're shooting there. One, you have to pay to have a liaison from the hospital because there are other buildings there that are still um, operational. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, you know, residents will wander back to the decommissioned buildings um, and go inside looking for their old homes. And if somebody gets in, you have to shut the whole place down um, and search for them. Um, So you have to have a liaison there. You have to have somebody at the door at all times to make sure that only crew are coming and going. Um, It's uh, it's a little intense. And if you are standing outside of the door, you're you know, occasionally a patient will walk by and they'll get a little curious and it's just, it's kind of a spooky place because horrible things happen there, you know, mm-hmm. back in the day. Um, but when I was there, I, the liaison was guarding, there's, there's basically a series of tunnels underneath, uh, the building that is used mainly for shooting. Um, and he was guarding the door, like he had set his little table up. Um, and you know, just, they didn't want people going around and playing in the tunnels cause you know, there's lots of ways you can get hurt. But I, I kept walking by and I kept looking at the door underneath the, and, and he noticed me looking and then eventually I just kind of paused and I was like, Hey, how's it going? He's like, you want to, you want to go in the tunnels, don't you? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I do. And he was like, lights on or off. And I was <gasps> like, off, obviously he's like, okay, give me a second. So he goes in. And a couple seconds go by, and then he comes back out, and he's got a flashlight. He's like, okay, come on. And he takes me into the tunnels and then starts flicking his flashlight on and off um, like it's breaking. Like he's just doing it for dramatic effect, but <laughs> having fun with it. I was so terrified and having so many. I mean, he showed me all these like crazy things. Like if you go and stand um, at one end of this one tunnel, uh, and there's like a gated off area and then through the gate there's like a water stain on like this far wall and when you turn off the lights and your eyes adjust to the water stain it looks exactly like there's a white dog just sitting at the end of the hallway looking at you oh that's strange yeah there was also um there's a couple little things like there's a a leftover from the x-files where you they built it for the x-files where you go up and there's like a like a manhole cover for a sewage drain that just goes to nowhere mm-hmm. um and he also told me about some folks that it was like some contract workers that were doing some work down there at one point and there was like a like a new fella on the team and they sent him to go get like some more cable or something like that and while he was gone one of these guys that were more familiar with the space kind of climbed up onto some of the pipes above um the hall and put on like a like a gown and then when this new guy was walking back he just let his arm fall down on the guy's shoulder and then apparently he ran left clean like left the building got in his truck and drove away and they never heard from him again (laughs) that's amazing that is amazing (laughs) he probably uh, wouldn't think it was amazing no, I, he's probably still in therapy um, for it. But uh, yeah, no, Session 9 just gives me such similar like creepy vibes. It's And the sound design on it. It's also like, it's. I think it was shot in some early form of digital. Um, I want to say it was probably early, maybe mid-2000s. But 
it's almost like a standard def kind of digital look to it. Yeah, something um, about 24 something a minute instead of the typical 30. I read something right. about it. I don't. 24 frames? Like progressive frames. Yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's not a good looking, like it's not a sharp movie, Mm-mm. but it, I think that that lends itself to just like that, this kind of like gritty kind of lo-fi sort of vibe that it has. I don't know. It's, and it's weird. There's weird sound design design choices. There's weird editing choices. Um, the movie opens with this shot of a, of a old chair just sitting at the end of a hallway. Like it's, and it makes you look at it for like a couple of minutes. It's like the opening frame of the movie. It's just, it's spooky and weird. And yeah, it gets me. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Can't watch it alone. I think it's like, it's one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. I, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm definitely going to want to watch this one again, but I'm curious. And this maybe if you ever want to be on the podcast again, would be a good one to talk about, but I would love to hear like a horror fan and then a director watch and review a similar movie and see the different things that you pick up versus somebody oh. who is not a director, right? Yeah. No, I'd love that. Yeah, because direct- filmmaking does change watching movies in a lot of ways. Um, I find that, like, I've, since I began directing, I start watching, I watch a lot of animation these days. Mm. And it's one of the few things that I can just kind of disappear into without thinking about how it's made. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, if it's part of cause... your job, then you're watching it through those eyes. I get that, yeah. Yeah, whereas animation, I have no idea how <laughs> how they make animated movies. So I can just, I can get lost in the story and the characters and stuff like that without, you know, analyzing it frame by frame. Right. So some, uh, some little fun facts I found out about this movie. It was filmed, as we know, in this abandoned hospital, Danvers State Asylum in Massachusetts, if I'm saying that right. Massachusetts or Sits? Massachusetts. Massachusetts. No, I can't get But apparently the script was written around the shooting location based on what rooms and corridors were actually safe to shoot in. So little to no set dressing had to be done for the film as it was suitably dilapidated and filled with abandoned medical equipment. Which I think that's interesting because I would imagine maybe somebody stumbled across it and thought this would make a great movie. I think about that every time I'm in River. Well, not in Riverview. I've never been in it. But every time I'm outside of it, like I want to do this. This would make such a good movie. And then boom. Yeah, you write a script. Actually, got to, I got to have that experience um, a couple of months ago when. Uh, so back in my twenties, I used to go camping uh, up in Squamish or up towards Squamish at this place called Klahani Campground, which is right across from Shannon Falls. And one of our traditions was we would, you know, drink around the campfire and then we would wander out of the campsite and down this little road to an abandoned ferry terminal. And we would just hang out at the ferry terminal and and take pictures and just have a, a good time. It was such a beautiful spot. Every time we go there, I'd be like, I want to shoot a movie here sometime. I want to shoot a movie here sometime. Fast forward a decade, um, and I'm shooting this this uh, this romance TV movie, and we were having trouble finding 
a location for uh, a spot where there used to be a lighthouse is the idea in, mm. in the world of the film. Um, and uh, our locations uh, manager was taking us to all these different places. It wasn't right. And I was like, I wonder who is responsible, like if it's a city thing, like who we would need the rights from to go shoot at this ferry terminal. Um, so I showed it to the crew. We went down there and uh, we ended up shooting the movie there. So wow. it was like 10 years after me going like, oh, it'd be so neat to shoot a movie here. I actually got to shoot a movie there, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that is really cool. It's yeah. neat how that kind of comes full circle. You banked that in your brain. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so the last two little tidbits I have about session nine is actor David Caruso reports that he saw something pass by my window when shooting inside the building, but he didn't want to tell anybody because he thought people would start looking at him strangely. <laughs> I mean, maybe back then now it would be like, call in the 30 paranormal investigators and let's figure out who's here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man i mean i it's funny uh at the at um riverview there's been number of stories from like like just like the biggest you know burliest grip dudes on a film set that refuse to be the last one to lock up wow um yeah and it's like oh they don't believe in ghosts you know it's like they're you know but they will not be the last people to lock up and I even had that with uh, the first tour that I did when I was on a location scout. The liaison um, took me to, I think it was the fourth floor. And uh, she said, go ahead, have a look. I'll be here. And I was like, well, you don't, you're not going to show me around? She's like, no. <laughs> She's like, I've, I've been up there. I'm like, okay. Um, and wow. uh, we ended up having a discussion because one of the things that I found was there was this big room um that looked like an operating room of sorts and i guess that's where they were doing like the uh like electric shock treatments and the and the lobotomies back in the day that wasn't the spooky part the spooky part was that there was an office you had to go out into the hallway and then next door there was an office and behind the door i guess behind where, where like a desk would go there was a little tiny stairwell that led up to a very thin little i don't know like it be like a six foot deep closet um what? and apparently what used to be there was a uh like a, a viewing station uh so you could like whoever was in that office could go up these little stairs and just stand and and oversee you know these these treatments that were happening but and this is what I'm told. I'm just like this maybe a game of telephone, but apparently that little room where you could go and, and watch the lobotomies are on no blueprints of the building. Oh, it's that's like it weird. Exist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's very creepy. Yeah. yeah. Spooky, but that liaison wouldn't even get up there. And then I've heard stories that you know they've gone and they've shut down you know, all the lights for the night and they're driving away and then there'll be a light on up in that room on the fourth floor. Yep, it's supposed to, yeah. See, I want to go in there and just, we all want to go in there, but when you're actually seeing and experiencing something like that, can you handle it is the question. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, <laughs> so this is 
this is related, but slightly unrelated. But I, I was teaching film in uh, Shanghai, China for a few months. And while I was there, I ended up going to a scare attraction called the Haunted Hospital. And I don't think it was a psychiatric hospital. It was like a, just like a hospital hospital that had been shut down and then turned into this massive scare attraction. So, and it took, I think it was like two kilometers worth of hallway that you wind through on different floors and things. Um, very similar to Danvers where it's like it's dilapidated. There's stuff falling apart. There's medical equipment everywhere. Um, and they've strategically lit little areas and you walk in and then there's, there's a, there's a little video at the beginning that tells you what the zombie outbreak and you get in there and there's zombies everywhere, like actors playing zombies that will chase you. But unlike scare attractions that I've gone to here in Vancouver, where you kind of get chased until you go into the next room and then they wait for the next guests. That's not how this was set up. If you run and the zombies chase you, they will continue to chase you throughout the two kilometers of hallway oh to the point where when we were got to the end, running and screaming and jumping over like, you know, pieces of medical equipment, uh, there was a, a horde of screaming zombies running as fast as they could, like directly behind us. It was like one of the most fun, terrifying scare attractions I've ever been to. <laughs> I bet you were probably scared and laughing hysterically all at the same time. I was, but my friend that I dragged along who doesn't like scary things was running with her hands over her eyes and nearly impaled herself on like a number of different pieces of equipment that were just sitting in the hallway. So I had to like use my vision and then pull her out of the way of things because she was just running blind. <laughs> We all, it's so funny talking to other big horror buffs because we all have times like that where we have dragged our friends to something kicking and screaming and they're mad at us and they're crying and, you know, <laughs> yeah. I love it. I I've since it. stopped bringing my boyfriend to scare attractions because I just felt like it was something that I just, you know, if you never, if you don't expose yourself to the fear, you'll never get used to it. That was like my, my idea. And I took him to this little <laughs> haunted house at Playland. And when we were done, he like trembled for a good 45 minutes. And I was like, I am so sorry. I will never ask you to do something like that again. Like, I think I, I traumatized the poor guy. <laughs> But I mean, as a horror fan, you need to go check it out. So I get it. I absolutely get that. Yeah. I just, I bring my spooky friends and stuff. Yes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Nicholas, for being here today. I, this was fun. This was, this was really fun. And it was great hearing everything that you've, you know, done and your history and what you're currently doing. And for anyone listening, he is someone to keep your eyes on. Go check out his shorts and his series. And I know I'm going to go find your stuff someplace. I watched The Little Mermaid. That was an easy one for me to find. So I want to go see what else I can find of yours. I would, uh, I mean, of the 70 some odd short films, the other one that I'm really like uh is uh m is for messiah which was on abc's of death 2.5 um and i think you can see it uh if you rent abc's of death 2.5 but the short itself is available i think on vimeo if you mm. look for m is for messiah that'd be the other one i would recommend and then i have some other links i'll send you to i've got stuff that i've since privated on youtube but little lo-fi short films and stuff that uh 
I don't know. Um, but also I have a website, nicholashumphreys.ca, um, where a lot of my work can kind of be found. There's uh, a series of movie posters. If you click on the poster, it'll take you to different links like trailers and sometimes a full short film. So go check out nicholashumphreys.ca. Yes. Run and check it out. Thank you so much.